I love poring over old stuff. And I find myself, when I'm in a museum, often imagining what life must have been like for the guy that wore that helmet or, or held that spear. One thing I really love is old letters. We don't do it now because everything's on email or Facebook, but there's something amazing about an old letter. And nothing helps you to get a handle on what things were like in the past like a letter does. You can read history books about the war, but go to the war memorial and read a handwritten letter written by a soldier that was sitting in the mud in the trenches. And that's where you really learn about what war is like. I've been praying over the last few months about what the Lord would have us do with our Sunday night time here. And I feel like the Lord's led me to a letter. It's a letter written by a pretty amazing guy, a guy named James. Now, I've preached from James before. I've led Bible studies based on this letter. And I've always found it to be full of heaps of really just practical teaching about living the life of a believer. Now, I don't know how long it will take us. We'll start at chapter 1 tonight and... We'll see how we go. We might break the record. I think we took 18 months getting through Mark a few years ago. I don't think it'll take us that long. But I'm really excited about what God might show us as we spend time in his word. So if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to read the book of James. It's not very long, but because it's a letter, it's designed to be read in one sitting. And we won't be able to do that here. We'll just take little bits at a time. But I think you'll really benefit from reading the letter all in one go. So there's some homework for you. Probably only take you 15 minutes. But just read the book of James this week. So a little bit of background. Because I always find it helpful when you come to a book of the Bible, to just have a bit of background about when it was written, who wrote it, who he was writing to. So there are two Jameses that we know about in the New Testament. One was James the Apostle, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. When we hear of Peter, James and John, that's that one. The other one was James the brother of Jesus. And Acts records James the Apostle as being martyred. So scholars are pretty sure that this James, the James that wrote this letter, was James the brother of Jesus. So get your head around that. This guy grew up with Jesus. He was his brother. He lived with him. He ate with him. He played with him. And then... Mark's gospel tells us that he was one of four brothers of Jesus. So it seems that there was five boys, probably some girls as well. He would have seen Jesus' ministry. He was probably there when Jesus died on the cross. We know that um, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he was an eyewitness to the resurrection so the, the scholars that study this sort of thing think he probably was there at the cross as well. 
Acts 15 tells us that he was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. So amazing guy in lots of ways. He knew Jesus intimately. He was probably there at the cross. We know he saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And he was a leader in the early church that we read about in Acts. So what's the letter about? Who was James writing to? Verse 1 tells us that James was writing to Christians, predominantly Jews who were scattered among the Gentile nations. See, the Jewish faith up until this time had been centred in Jerusalem. But very early in the life of the Christian church, persecution forced the Christians to scatter. So there were little churches everywhere. And these people were Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, but they had to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution. The scholars believe that James was one of the earliest books in the New Testament to be written, written around the year AD 49. So this is very early in the life of the church. Don't forget that Jesus only left the earth in the year 33. So this is just 16 years later that this letter is written. So the people that James is writing to are new believers. Many of them were probably around when Jesus was on earth. And these people are suffering for their faith. The amazing miracles that, that Jesus had performed and the excitement in the, of the resurrection and the amazing early days of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon them and thousands of people were saved, those things had been replaced by fear and incredible suffering. And that suffering was going to get worse. So much so that within a decade... Many of these believers would be burnt on stakes to light the gardens of Emperor Nero or they would be thrown to lions to entertain the Romans. So what does this man James have to say to these early Christians? We're just going to make a start tonight in chapter 1 and see what this amazing guy has to say because... I believe that through him, God wants to speak to us. But let's just stop and pray before we start. Lord, as we begin our time in James's letter written so long ago, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Most of us aren't facing the kind of persecution that these early believers were, but we all know what it is to struggle and so we pray that the challenges and the truths of this letter would encourage us, challenge us and strengthen us. Thank you for your word. May we hear from you through it tonight, we pray. Amen. So James chapter 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. So most of the New Testament letters start with a greeting, much like 
we might say, how are you? I hope this letter finds you well. Or this generation might say, hey, sup? Did I do that right? Sup? No, I didn't. <laughs> sup, that means what's up? <laughs> if you didn't know. Um, so James starts by saying hi. It's James here. But it's significant the way that James describes himself. Remember, he's part of Jesus' immediate family and he's a prominent leader in the church. So there's lots of things he could have said about himself, isn't there? He could have said, this is James, brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, leader of the church. But he doesn't, does he? What does he call himself? A slave. He says, this is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That says a lot about his heart, doesn't it? That he would identify himself as a slave. Paul was another great man of faith who called himself the same thing. Now we have a, rightly so, a negative view of slavery in the 21st century. But to the hearers of this letter, a slave was a valued member of the family who was committed to living their life with their master. And often slaves would sacrifice their freedom out of pure love for their master and commit to serving him for life. So that's, that's the image that these hearers would have had when they heard James describe himself as a slave of Christ. And that's the kind of life we're called to as believers. A life fully devoted to following and serving our Master Jesus. So let's keep reading. This is verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now these people knew what it was like to live with trouble. They were being persecuted. Many of them would have lost loved ones in extremely violent ways. They'd been uprooted from their homes. They had to flee from where they lived and, and start their lives over in a foreign land because they were literally afraid for their lives. They were living lives of fear and uncertainty and considerable trouble. But James says, consider it an opportunity, an opportunity for great joy. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of wrong to me. When life is tough, you feel all sorts of things, don't you? Sadness, fear, anxiety, bitterness, resentment, but not joy often. Often that's the last thing that you would normally feel when life gets really tough. So what is James saying here? Is he saying that we should live with this attitude of, oh, it's all good, everything's fine, my dog died, I've got no job, there's no food in the fridge, but it's all good. I don't think that's what James is meaning 
he's not suggesting that we have this masochistic happiness in the midst of tragedy or even some sort of weird denial that says, no, everything's fine, I'm fine. He's not suggesting that we put on a fake smile when we're hurting. So what does he mean? What does he mean by saying that when things are tough, we, could, we should consider it an opportunity for joy? Well, verses 3 and 4 give us some answers. Verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So James says that there's a reason that we can be joyful in the midst of trouble. And it's this, that God is in the mess and can do a work in us that will leave us perfect and complete. So James says that in the midst of struggle, our faith is tested and we grow. The word for testing that we, dis- that we translate testing, the word in the Greek is a word that's used to describe the process of purifying silver. I don't know if you know much about the process of purifying silver. I didn't, so I googled it. Apparently, there is, apparently silver is rarely found in its pure form. When it's mined, it's full of all impurities. And in order to get rid of the impurities, the silver is placed into a really hot furnace. And all the muck is burnt away and what is left is pure silver, which then can be used to make something beautiful. And that's the word that James uses when he describes what's going on when we're in the midst of tough times. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, and this is the verse that James was probably alluding to. It says, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. In the furnace of suffering, we're being purified. The muck is being burnt away. And our faith grows and our perseverance grows, and we come out at the end stronger, more pure, and more beautiful. When I look back over the times in my life that have been hard, if you were to ask me, would you choose to go through that? My answer would have to be no. But I would say that those have been the times in my life when my relationship with God has been the most intimate, my prayer life most vital and my faith and my character have grown in ways that I don't think would have been possible if I hadn't gone through the hard times. Those of you that were here last Sunday night heard the young girl Bethany Hamilton, a girl who at the age of 13 lost her arm when a shark attacked her in the surf. She said that very same thing. Would I choose it? No. 
but would I change it? No, I wouldn't. Because what I've realised, she said, is that God has done and is doing things in me and through me that he couldn't have done if I hadn't lost my arm. James said that's why in the tough times we can have real joy because it's in the suffering that our character and our intimacy with God grow. Did you notice that James said when troubles come your way? The Bible's pretty clear that we will all face times of struggle. John said it in in John 16. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. That's just it. And most of us know that to be true, don't we? And so we can spend a lot of time and emotional energy asking, why is this happening to me? Or we can just accept the fact that in this life we will have trouble. Sometimes there's a reason for it, but often there's no reason. It's just the result of the fact that we live in a world that's messed up by sin. But it's not just about accepting that life is tough. James takes it further. He says that suffering is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for joy and for growth. It's all about choice, James says. In the suffering, and it will come, we have choices. And the choices mainly concern our attitude. I've heard it explained to me this way. When we suffer, we can choose. We can choose to be a student or a victim. I know we've talked about this before and Louis Giglio in one of the DVDs talks about this as well. That we can choose in the midst of suffering to be a student or a victim. What does that mean? Well, when the hard times come, a victim says, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? Why am I sick? Why am I out of work? A student says... I don't care why it happened. They don't even ask the why question. They just say, I just want to know what I can learn from this. That's the difference between a victim and a student. A victim looks at their circumstances and says, life isn't fair. It's not fair. A student looks at life and says, what happened to me could have happened to anyone. Someone said that to me years ago when I said, why me, to them. They said, why not you? (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Why not you? A victim feels sorry for themselves, blames other people. A student says, yeah, I know this is hard, but I know I can learn something and come out of this a better person. Do you see how in the midst of suffering there's a choice? You can choose to be a student, not a victim, and to allow God to build your character. We can also choose whether to blame God or praise God. 
We can blame God. We can get angry with him. We can, can complain that we don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Some people even walk away from God when things don't go right in their lives. Or we can make a choice to praise and thank Jesus despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's a choice. I am going to praise God. I am going to choose to praise God whatever the future holds. Whatever the outcome of this is going to be because I believe that God is a good God and that doesn't change just because my life is tough. And there's amazing freedom in that. In being able to say, there's nothing that this world or Satan or life can throw at me that will change my love of God or his love of me. And there's joy. That's what James says. Supernatural, unexplainable joy. And the result is that the promise of verse 4 becomes true for us. That in the midst of suffering... We will be perfect and complete and needing nothing. I really want to be like that. Let's pray and then we're going to gather around the communion table. Lord, we don't live with the kind of persecution that these people in the early church were living with. We don't fear for our lives. Most of us don't have any worry about where we will sleep tonight or whether there'll be anything in the cupboard for breakfast in the morning. But all of us know to some extent what it is to suffer. And even tonight there are people here who are suffering with, with huge health challenges, with conflict in their relationships, with grief, with financial struggles. Lord, we're so thankful that you care and that you're in the midst of the struggle with us. We're sorry for the way that we question you and blame you and ask why. We thank you for the promise of your word that in everything you are in control and you are working for good. Help us to see that. Help us to see that you're working for good and hang on to the truth of that. And we pray that as we struggle that you would refine us, that you'd burn out the rubbish and make us perfect and pure and complete and filled with joy. Bless your people here, I pray. Amen.